President Trump says it's not about the money, it's location, 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 as in the president's golf resort. The lead starts right now. An empty chair and a story that doesn't add up. President Trump absent from a key meeting, another head-scratching moment at a summit heavy on chaos and confusion. He has a long history of racially charged, bigoted comments. Now former GOP Congressman Joe Walsh is taking on Trump in 2020 and going after the president's rhetoric. How is he the alternative? I'll ask him this hour. And breaking now, a judge just moments away from ruling in what could be one of the biggest financial penalties in U.S. history against a company we all know, and you may even use their products, that company accused of helping get America hooked. Welcome to The Lead on this Monday. I'm Erica Hill in for Jake Tapper. And we begin today with the politics lead. President Trump on his way back to Washington right now after an often chaotic, confusing, contradictory three days at the G7 summit with world leaders. Speaking with reporters earlier today, Mr. Trump claimed China in a series of high level calls indicated it wants to make a deal to stem the rapidly escalating trade war. The president saying he'll only sign on, though, if it's, quote, fair to the United States. He also opened the door to meeting with Iran's president under certain circumstances and continued to suggest he may invite Vladimir Putin to next year's G7 summit, which the U.S. will host, likely at a Trump property in Florida. CNN's Abby Phillips starts off our coverage from the White House. This is a truly successful G7. There was tremendous unity. President Trump ending this year's G7 summit with his rendition of Kumbaya during a joint press conference with the French president. We would have stayed for another hour. Uh, Nobody wanted to leave. We were accomplishing a lot, but I think more importantly, we were getting along very well. Seven countries. But minutes later in a solo press conference, the divide between Trump and other world leaders on the climate crisis, Iran and Russia, were on full display. Hours after skipping a meeting attended by other G7 leaders on the impact of climate change, Trump once again dismissing the crisis he once called a hoax. I'm not going to lose that wealth. I'm not going to lose it on, on dreams, on windmills, which frankly aren't working too well. Trashing the Iran nuclear deal he pulled the United States out of. I have to say the JCPOA was a uh, bad deal should not have been entered into. This, as France's President Emmanuel Macron defended the deal by meeting with Iran's foreign minister on the sidelines of the summit. As for the prospect that he might meet with Iranian leaders, Trump initially wouldn't commit to a meeting, but later warmed up to the idea. I think that there's a really good chance that we would meet. Trump continuing to push for Russia to rejoin the G7, despite other world leaders not agreeing. Meantime, with global markets in flux as the trade war with China escalates, the issue seemed to dominate the summit. China wants to make a deal, and if we can, we will make a deal. We'll see. The president offering no apologies for his chaotic strategy to resolve the trade dispute. The way I negotiate, it's done very well for me over the years, and it's doing even better for the country. Even as tariffs escalate on both sides, Trump claiming without evidence that China is now ready to come to the table. I believe they want to do a deal. The tariffs have hit them very hard in a fairly short period of time. 
And President Trump said that he did not believe that this weekend was the right time to meet with Iran's foreign minister who was at the G7. But he may have another chance. Emmanuel Macron, France's president, says he is working to broker another meeting between President Trump and Iran in the next few weeks. Erica? We will be watching for that. Abby, thank you. As you take stock of everything we just heard from the president, the president, when asked about his chaotic messaging with China, as we just heard in Abby's piece, which sent the markets into a tailspin, he said that was part of a negotiation tactic. Amanda, this is the way he negotiates. Is it effective? I mean, we'll see what happens. I think there's a lot of people in the business community who are hoping for a deal with China. Uh, you, you hear some people say, well, if he gets in electoral trouble, maybe next summer, he will come to the table and make something happen if the economy needs it. And so I think people are giving him a lot of rope on this. But if you were looking for answers coming out of this summit and clarity in anything from China to Russia to Iran, you weren't going to find it. I do think he was more statesmanlike here than he has been, given the bar is very low. Um, but he does seem more at ease with outsourcing some of these talks, possibly with President Macron, with Iran. And so there is a little bit more steadiness. But, man, this is still a rocky ride. Next summer is a long way off, by the yes, way. You're is. saying a yes, deal next is. summer. So there's that. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was interesting, too, because he was asked specifically about Russia. And, Shauna, what he did was he turned once again to former President Obama. Here's that moment. He was outsmarted by Putin. He was outsmarted. President Putin outsmarted President Obama. Wait a minute. And I can understand how President Obama would feel. He wasn't happy, and they're not in for that reason. I think it would be better to have Russia inside the tent than outside the tent. I do nothing for politics. I do what's right. He does what's right. He was asked there specifically about welcoming Russia back in, and the question started off with, Oh, hey, by the way, remember the meddling in the 2016 election. Do you think Russia should still be back? And then this is where he went on the answer. It's fascinating that he's obsessed in some ways with the former president. He is still obsessed with the former president. I also thought it was interesting that uh, Yamiche Alcindor, who asked him mm -hmm. about this, yeah. then did a follow-up basically saying, you know, okay, Russia was kicked out of the G7. Frankly, not because they messed with the 2016 election, which is a whole thing for us right. to deal with, because they annexed Crimea, because they took part of Ukraine and said, now it's ours, which they still have. And and then our president went on this whole rant about how that happened under President Obama, mm -hmm. as though he doesn't understand totally that all these things connect together. It doesn't matter if something happened under President Obama. Wars happened under President Obama. Wars happened under President Trump. These things, like, the entire world is interconnected. But since, I mean, he leads with this America first idea, mm -hmm. and he is now president, and so whatever happened then is not his problem, and that includes the Iran deal, which he got out of, the climate, the climate pact, which he got out of, and then talking about this. He sees it under those terms, but also invoking President Obama does stoke his base. And we have to remember the one thing he is really, really good at, and not just one thing, he's good at multiple things. But the one thing he is really good at is understanding sort of how to play the media to get his message out there so that his base knows he is fighting for them and is still against President Obama. It, it is fascinating. And look, there are some legitimate criticisms of how things may have been handled when it came to Ukraine. Yes. That's a topic for another panel. But, you know, to your point, not exactly the way it was laid out there. When we when we talk about Iran and the possibility of an Iran deal, I mean, the president's saying he's open now to this meeting. Why not? I mean, you look at it. Why not try to get a better deal? Well, I think right now, I mean, the whole entire trip so far has been failed leadership. And just going back to his base, his base wants America first. And I think that is what everyone, what we've seen in polling. But yet he hasn't done that in every step of the way throughout this meeting, whether it is, you know, 
Putin and putting Russia back into the G7, or whether it is not showing up to the climate meeting, um, or whether it is, you know, trying to have the next G7 at his resort, um, which that's not putting America first. That's putting Donald Trump first. If you want to put America first, why don't you have it someplace where America benefits? So again, I think throughout this entire trip, it is we need to start out with showing how this president has failed to do anything. So one of the things that's been interesting on this trip is that the White House has been doing a fair amount of cleanup, and, and probably you just touched on this, but one of the most obvious examples was this meeting right. earlier today or where the president was not there for this meeting uh, about climate. And he said, well, you know, it's happening later on. The White House put out a statement saying the president had scheduled meetings and bilaterals with Germany and India. So a senior member of the administration attended in his stead. But then there was the photo that showed Angela Merkel, Merkel that showed uh, Prime Minister Modi. They were at the meeting and the president's chair was empty. It's amazing, and yet not. And yet, and yet very uh, par for the course. I mean, this, it, the, the cleanup is kind of one in, is kind of hand in hand when it comes to being a communicator for this administration. Um, the president says one thing and they try to cover for it, but sometimes there's photo evidence that completely, and it, actually this has happened several times, mm-hmm. that completely contradict what the White House says. I mean, the bottom line, climate is not a focus for this administration. Mm -hmm. I'm actually kind of surprised they worked double duty to try to cover this up because they've their actions show how much um, they aren't really concerned about climate change. It's not a priority. It won't be a priority for this administration. We have a president who said it's a hoax propagated by China. So that doesn't really leave a lot of room for open mindedness um, on that issue. Uh, Stay with us. Uh, We also have breaking news at this hour, a landmark legal ruling. A judge finds a company that we likely all know guilty of a substantial role in one state's opioid crisis. That's next. This is CNN Breaking News. Breaking news in the national lead, a landmark decision in Oklahoma. A judge finds Johnson & Johnson played a substantial role in that state's devastating opioid crisis. Now, for the first time, a pharmaceutical company is being held accountable for what is one of the worst health epidemics in history. And here was that key moment. The opioid crisis is an imminent danger and menace to Oklahomans. My judgment includes findings of fact and conclusions of law that the state met its burden, that the defendants Janssen and Johnson and Johnson's misleading marketing and promotion of opioids created a nuisance as defined by 50 OS section one, including a finding that those actions compromised the health and safety of thousands of Oklahomans. Specifically, defendants caused an opioid crisis that is evidenced by increased rates of addiction, overdose deaths, and neonatal abstinence syndrome in Oklahoma. This is a temporary public nuisance that can be abated, and the proper remedy for public nuisance is equitable abatement. As I just stated, the opioid crisis has ravaged the state of Oklahoma. It must be abated immediately. For this reason, I am entering an abatement plan that consists of costs totaling $572,102,028 Uh, There you saw the judge. Joining us now, CNN's Alexandra Field, who's at the courthouse in Norman, Oklahoma. Uh, Alex, let's start with you. So tell us a little bit more about this decision. A significant number, but that is far less than they were asking. 
Yeah, less money than they were asking for, but this is really a landmark decision, and this is going to be studied in states across the country. There are dozens of states working to sue Big Pharma for the role that they say that those companies play in fueling the opioid epidemic that has killed hundreds of thousands of people in the last 20 years. Success for the state of Oklahoma, the first state to take a big pharmaceutical company to trial making those allegations. They claimed that Johnson & Johnson had created a public nuisance, one that cost the state billions of dollars and claimed thousands of lives. After eight weeks of testimony, more than 100 witnesses, the judge said that the state had met its burden. Now, Erica, the state was seeking some $17.2 billion worth of abatement that would go toward programs within the state for prevention and treatment, other addiction services too. The judge in the end ordered $572 million, still a big number, not what uh, the state was looking for. Uh, Not clear how exactly the judge came up with that number. He Mm -hmm. says if more money needs to be allocated to the crisis, it's something that legislators will have to take up. But certainly this is something that's going to be watched closely as you've got thousands of other claims against pharmaceutical companies now advancing. Absolutely. And, And the judge so stark in his language there. Not only did they meet the burden, but saying their actions compromised the health and safety and contributed to a rise in addiction rates, overdose deaths, and the neonatal issues as well, Sanjay. As you look at all of this, and you have covered this so well for so many years, I'm just curious your initial reaction to the finding. Uh, it's, it's, as Alexandra said, it's, it's a big deal. It's reminiscent of big tobacco sort of drawing this cause and effect. The actions, in this case, by a drug company, led or in part led to this this opioid epidemic. It's the first time, as again, as Allegra said, is we've had this sort of ruling. So that, that's a big deal. You know, for, for a long time, these drug companies have been saying, look, we, we weren't to blame here. We were the makers of these drugs, but it was the overprescribing of these drugs. It was uh, the cultural issues, whatever it might be. Uh, that's not really because of us. This ruling obviously suggests that that's not the case, that there was misinformation that was deliberate and it helped fuel this, this opioid epidemic. I, I think also, you know, if you look at the total economic cost, according to the CDC, per year of the prescription opioid epidemic, it's around $80 billion a year. And there's some 2,000 cities, counties, and states that have filed suit. So where this goes from here, I, I, I don't know, but it's, 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 it's going to make a lot, of, uh, a lot of waves throughout the, the medical world, throughout the entire world. Uh, Elliot, we'll, we'll let you tackle the, the legal aspect of that. When you look at this, what could be next? Sanjay mentioned all these other cases. There is other pending legislation, and I would imagine that those folks will now be looking specifically at this ruling out of Oklahoma. Right, and it's a remarkable legal theory because I believe this is the first time that a drug company has, fa- has you know, been found to have created a public nuisance for putting out a drug that functioned exactly as it was intended. It's not like you know in the 1980s and 1990s where you had the IUDs and breast implants that, that hurt people because they, 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 just, they were defective. I mean, these drugs worked the way they intended. They just were um, through what the judge says was misleading advertising and, and pushing on, on individuals where, you know, where there already had been deaths. And so this is a fascinating legal theory. Um, and it's certainly this case in Ohio that was alluded to a little bit earlier. It's something like 2,000 um, municipalities mm-hmm. have brought lawsuits and those are being consolidated together. And they will be looking at this particular legal theory that um, a drug company can put out a product as intended, um, but through a desire, frankly, a desire to generate profits and a desire uh, uh, to keep prescribing when in spite of um, evidence of of individuals being harmed, um, can, um, there you go. One thing, uh, just to point out a nuance there, uh, Elliot's absolutely right, but also 
the idea that may have worked as intended, but that, that they, uh, the dangers could still be understated. Right. Uh, that there was knowledge about the risk of addiction mm -hmm. uh, from this and the impact on the brain that caused these overdose deaths. So it's, it's both. It, it worked as intended, but the dangers were known, I think, and, and, that, and that's part of the concern. And, and, and minimized, of course, again. And minimized, uh, yeah, yeah. They just, um, they knew of the harms and just simply chose not to tell doctors, and not to tell the public, or at least as the judge found, uh, that, that more people could be harmed. It is a major ruling. We'll continue to, uh, to follow it as well. Uh, and the fallout, Elliot Williams, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, Alexandra Field, thank you all. Thank you. The first major national poll of 2019 that does not show former Vice President Biden in the lead. We are now talking about what's essentially a three-way tie, where Biden is losing support next. In our 2020 lead, a new poll out today highlighting the battle at the heart of the 2020 Democratic race, the progressive wing of the party, Versus the moderates, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren now virtually tied at the top of the field in the new Monmouth University poll. But is that poll an outlier? A CNN poll just last week found Biden comfortably at the top. What is not in dispute, though, Senator Warren drawing what may be her largest crowd to date, as CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports. We're not going to win this by just saying not Trump. We're not. Elizabeth Warren sharpening her electability argument and delivering the message to some of the largest crowds yet of the 2020 campaign. In Seattle on Sunday and last week in St. Paul, Minnesota, Warren drawing thousands and thousands in a sign of rising enthusiasm and growing curiosity about her candidacy. And that's what I'm seeing in these crowds, people who are all in. It's a subtle, though unmistakable contrast with Joe Biden, whose audiences have been far smaller. Yet Biden's still leading the Democratic field by most metrics, as he insists he's the strongest candidate to defeat President Trump. He's not calling for a revolution, but rather hoping to make the race a referendum on Trump. It's going to take a movement. It has to be a movement grounded in our values and our ideals that define us as a country. And they're being crushed. The 2020 contest has been remarkably stable throughout the summer. But campaign advisors tell CNN they believe the race could be far more fluid heading into the fall. A new Monmouth University poll today shows a three-way fight with Warren, Bernie Sanders and Biden at the top of the field. Yet that survey stands in contrast to a CNN poll last week that showed Biden with a double-digit lead over Sanders and Warren. Sanders is also drawing impressive crowds, just like he did in 2016. A reminder that crowd sizes do not always translate to victory. But then, like now, the fight for the nomination is framed about whether a progressive or more moderate approach offers the best chance of winning back the White House. That divide on critical issues like health care on clear display between Montana Governor Steve Bullock and New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio at back-to-back -back CNN town halls Sunday night. I don't think, though, that the best thing to do would be to start all over. I don't want to take away 165 million people that have employer-sponsored health care and take it away. There should not be such a thing as an American who doesn't have insurance or doesn't have health care. That should be a thing of the past. Now, as for Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden, the competition between the two of them is intensifying. But so far, they have not yet shared a debate stage. That could soon change. This week, we will learn which candidates are qualifying for that September debate in Houston. So far, 10 candidates have made the cut. They'll have until Tuesday 
excuse me, until Wednesday, Erica, to reach that criteria. So we will find out if Biden and Warren are side by side next month. Erica. Oh, and if they are. All right, Jeff, thank you. Uh, as we look at all of this, it is really fascinating to look at these two polls. So there's this new Monmouth poll, as we've just been talking about, and you see Sanders, Warren, and Biden basically tied there. The, the margin of error there, six points. Compare that with CNN's own poll from last week, also a six-point margin of error, where you see Joe Biden with that comfortable lead there, and then Sanders and Warren at 14 and 15 percent. Um, what may be the biggest takeaway, though, here? And I'll throw this to you as, as our um, as our dem at the table is is really the rise of Elizabeth Warren. Absolutely. I think all of our candidates and we we're looking at especially the top few and we and had a head to head against Donald Trump will beat Donald Trump in a head to head. I think that's why he's running scared. But we always knew this was going to be a competitive primary newsflash. This is we have a lot of good candidates in the race. And you know what? Guess who is not lying about her crowd sizes? That's Elizabeth Warren. That's a lot of the Democrats around. They're not lying about crowd sizes the way Donald Trump is. And so we're really excited about it. There are 10 more debates. I think a lot of people will, um, going after Labor Day, the polling, I think, will continue to tighten. But at the same time, that's when people pay attention is right after Labor Day. So we still have a long way to go. And the voters will decide from there. One of the things that I also thought was interesting, and Jackie, I'll throw this one to you, is, is the swing that we're seeing among conservative and moderate Democrats. So if we look at from June, 40 percent were supporting Joe Biden, 10 percent behind Bernie Sanders, 6 percent behind Elizabeth Warren. Now you look at these numbers, Joe Biden is at 22 percent. And look at how much Support has ticked up for both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Again, conservative and moderate Democrats. What do you attribute that shift to? So I will say the sample size of this poll was a little small. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so it, we might be looking at an outlier. But the trend lines are similar to other polls in terms of the, the rise of, of Warren and Bernie Sanders. And they're sort of pulling at each other's support. Right. Listen, Joe Biden's support, while among some demographics is strong, it's soft. Mm-hmm among others. And they're they're shopping. They're looking at these other candidates, seeing who might better represent them. One thing Elizabeth Warren has going for her that Sanders sort of struggles is she explains her policies really well so that people can understand. She's them. got a plan. She's good. on. She's got a plan. <laughs> she has that down, but she's good on the stump and she's able to break things down instead of, you know, I, I wrote the damn plan or whatever he is. I wrote the damn bill. Yeah, yeah. yeah the <laughs> damn bill. So there there is um, she that is one place that I've heard um, from folks who've been out on the trail and been listening that she has an advantage. Um, But, you know, we uh, are at the very beginning of this process and we're going to see Biden support um, move from some of these other candidates. Yeah, Here's where Joe Biden is in trouble. And yes, this poll is an outlier. But if it goes in that direction, the case for his candidacy has essentially been you like me, you know me, I'm electable. And maybe we'll talk about how I'm a more moderate candidate later. Well, on some of those things, if Elizabeth Warren starts to pierce that veil and say, oh, guess what? I'm electable, too. You do like me, too. And I think this is the rationale behind those crowd sizes. Why did she feel the need to get a big crowd in Seattle, which isn't really going to change the election? She needs those photos to demonstrate to the Democratic base, yes, I can get those crowds, too. If you doubt I have the ability to go head-to-head with Trump, take a picture. Yeah, I'm serious about this. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, those show, and those crowd sizes show it. And I know you were making the joke about how President Trump used to talk about his crowd size in 2016. But you know what? There was something that was telling in the crowd, in the actual crowds he got and the places he was able to fill at the time that the media, including myself, sort of missed because our heads were buried in the polling. And it speaks to that idea mm-hmm. of having strength and having power. I also think like what this poll sort of says to me with the moderate and, mm-hmm. and conservative Democrats or moderate and middle or whatever 
whatever we're calling them, as well as the fact that 53% of Democratic voters say they want a system that offers an opt-in to Medicare while retaining the private health insurance market. Is this poll just says Democrats are just trying to figure out who can beat Trump. It comes right. back to the electability. Mm-hmm. Because all of the things in here don't quite add up to supporting Elizabeth Warren or supporting Joe Biden or supporting Bernie Sanders. They add up to... Oh, my God, there's a new person. Okay, I didn't know who Elizabeth Warren was before. Let me figure out if that's the person who can beat Trump. That's what I keep seeing, in at least in these early polls. Which is interesting because that's what we heard right from Jill Biden last week was don't worry about all of the details here. You should just. <laughs> but but they're right, right, right. Saying, don't worry about the details. You may not love my husband on everything, mm-hmm. but he's the guy who can beat Donald Trump, which, again, I go back to that is not the strongest campaign message. If you're trying to talk about a vision for the future. But is that the message that Democrats ultimately need? Well, I think it's both. It's not an either or here. Yes, you're right that people do want to know who is going to beat Donald Trump. But they also want to know who's got my back. And right now, I think that with all of these debates, these have been very substantive conversations. We might not all agree on how to move forward on health care. Mm-hmm. We might not all agree on, the, on immigration. But the one thing is clear is anyone on that stage, their message has been, I have got your back. And I think that's the difference. They're not only playing in a primary, but everyone knows moving forward, you know what, we're going to have to beat Donald Trump. And the Democratic Party's message has been very clear that, yes, we're going to beat him, but we're going to do it on our values. Well, we have a lot of time to keep talking about this. That is the good (laughs) news, ladies. We are not done yet. As 2020 Democrats face off to challenge President Trump, there is actually a new Republican who at one time supported the president who is now after his seat as well. I'll speak with the newest presidential candidate, former Congressman Joe Walsh, next. In our 2020 lead, we now have another Republican challenger to President Trump, former Illinois Congressman and conservative talk show host Joe Walsh, who says the president is unfit for office and thinks he's the guy to replace him. He joins me now. Sir, good to have you with us. So tell us, why are you the Trump alternative? Erica, good to be with you, by the way. He's unfit. Uh, We have a child in the White House. Somebody needs to say that. I've been stunned, Erica, at my Republican Party uh, that nobody has stepped up to make the moral case against this president. It needs to be made every day that goes by in this country, Erica. We realize that he doesn't know what he's doing. He lies every time he opens his mouth. He's a narcissist. That case has to be made against him, and I'm going to do it. So you want to make that case. You say he's morally unfit. You want to make the moral case. Uh, We can't ignore that you have a lengthy list of controversial Mm -hmm. tweets. I know you've apologized for a number of them. A lot of people, though, still uncomfortable with the language that you used. But since you've also declared you have called the president, as you just did, a narcissist, a child, cruel, incompetent. You said he's nuts. How is going down that path any different from the rhetoric that we hear from the president that you say you want to campaign against? You know what, Eric, it's a good question. It's a fair question. I just think this is an urgent time in our country's history. We have never, ever had a president like this. And we saw it again today over at the G7. We've never had a president in the history of this country who you could not believe a single word that came out of his mouth. That's what we've got here. And I don't care what your politics are. That's dangerous. And it's dangerous, Erica, because now we're at a point where this president is so erratic. He's tweeting this country into a recession. And I'm just, again, so disappointed that my former Republican colleagues don't speak up. But, but just to be clear, too, on the question, 
from what I just heard come out of your mouth, it doesn't sound like you see a real difference between the rhetoric that you're using and the rhetoric that you're complaining about that, that President Trump is using. Did I miss no, something there? No, you know what? I'm going to make the case that he's incompetent. I'm going to make the case, Erica, respectfully that he doesn't know what he's doing. I'm going to make the case, Erica, Erica, respectfully that he puts his own interest ahead of the country's interest. And I'm going to make the case respectfully that he lies almost every time he opens his mouth. I'll do that with respect. But as far as I'm concerned, those are just facts that right now are presenting a real dangerous situation for this country. Um, You said in this New York Times op-ed that you penned a couple of weeks ago, Americans want fixes to our most basic problems. Part of a tweet that you put out in the past reads, I have a right to use an AR-15 to defend my family and my home. That's America. Get off my lawn. Gun control is a major issue for Americans at this point. And it is something that we know an overwhelming number of Americans would like to see addressed. Let's start with universal background checks. The president has backed off his support after conversations Mm. with the NRA. Where do you stand? Do you support universal background checks? Uh, No, but vis-a-vis the president, Erica, he's been all over the map. A week or two ago, he said yes. This past week, he's sort of hedging and going Mm -hmm. the other way. Look, 98, 99 percent of all the guns bought and sold in this country are already covered by universal background checks. We have a problem. You're right. Too many mass shootings in this country. I don't think that's an issue when it comes to background checks, though. We've got a white nationalism, white supremacy problem in this country that we need to be honest about and go after. So you want to go after that. But just to be clear here, you do not support universal background checks. I should point out 89 percent of Americans, 84 percent of Republicans do believe that implementing background checks for gun purchases is a good idea. That's from a PBS NPR Marist poll uh, just last month. And as you know, 60% of Americans do favor some sort of stricter gun control legislation. This is going to come up a lot. And it's a broad topic. Yeah, no, I know it is, Erica. And again, to be clear, um, we already have universal background checks. We have back, I mean, major background checks in this country that already cover 98 to 99 percent of every gun purchase made in this country. I'm just saying, I, and I support mm-hmm. that, by the way. I just don't think that's where our emphasis needs to be right now. So you talk about the problem of white nationalism, white supremacists. In the past, you have put out tweets about former yeah. President Obama saying uh, that he was elected just because he was black. You called him a Muslim. I'm not clear if that's supposed to be derogatory. I'm not sure there's something wrong with being a Muslim. But if you look at those tweets, are you concerned that those may be read as white nationalism? No, and Erica, there was nothing derogatory meant by that, because as you rightly said, there's nothing derogatory about being called Muslim. But to that tweet, yes, that is a tweet I apologize for. I called Barack Obama a Muslim. Erica, that was wrong. I regret doing it. And you referenced the New York Times op-ed piece two weeks ago. One of the reasons I wrote that op-ed piece was to apologize. Mm -hmm. I mean, genuinely apologize for the role that I played, that I played in putting what I believe is an unfit con man in the White House. Too often in the past, Erica, I engaged in this hateful personal rhetoric so caught up in our political battles. And I believe some of the demonizing that I and others did, I think it led to Trump. What, and I regret that. What is your next step here? Are you, um, is it next stop Iowa? 
<laughs> Next stop, Iowa, New Hampshire. We're going to get in the president's face every day. We're going to get in front of voters every day. Our campaign slogan is be brave. I could be wrong, Erica, but I believe most Republicans privately believe this president is unfit. They're tired of all of his drama. We just want them to be brave enough to come public with that. Joe Walsh, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thanks, Erica. All you can see is death. The world's largest rainforest being compared to a cemetery as CNN flies above the Amazon fires. We are live in Brazil next. In our world lead, the White House trying to explain why President Trump skipped a climate meeting at the G7 today, saying, quote, the president had scheduled meetings and bilaterals with Germany and India. So a senior member of the administration attended in his stead. Here's the thing, though. There's this photo with both Germany's chancellor and India's prime minister there at the meeting, the seat for President Trump empty. When asked if he considers the climate crisis a priority, the president today claimed he knows more about the environment than most people, called himself an environmentalist, and in his answer focused on the financials, not the climate crisis. The United States uh, has tremendous wealth. The wealth is under its feet. I'm not going to lose that wealth. I'm not going to lose it on on dreams, on windmills. A main focus of the meeting, Mr. Trump skipped an international response to the fires devastating the Amazon rainforest. CNN's Nick Peyton Walsh is live in Brazil. And Nick, you actually got a rare close-up look at the devastation earlier. Yeah, nothing to do with dreams and windmills here. And in fact, the richest seven nations on Earth could only get together $20 million for emergency help on this, the most pressing environmental crisis that they face. Will Brazil even accept it? Well, as President Jair Bolsonaro has been in a Twitter spat about an offensive meme uh, that he commented on to do with uh, Emmanuel Macron, the French president's wife today. They're too busy, distracted, frankly, at the politics of this and the urgency of the problem. Well, that's what, frankly, we saw just yesterday. Miles and miles of seemingly endless devastation. This is almost a cemetery. Once you get past the billows of smoke, cinders and scorched land. All you can see is dead. CNN getting a rare aerial look of the newest fires ravaging the Amazon rainforest, known as the Earth's lungs, providing 20% of the world's oxygen. This area has been the worst hit. There are 85% more fires burning in Brazil than this time last year. As of Sunday night more than 80,000 nationwide. These apocalyptic sites are kind of like the warnings about what might happen if the world doesn't do something about the climate crisis that you keep hearing. But instead, it's right below us, right here and right now. The Amazon is seen as the key player in the fight against the climate crisis. Deforestation has had its toll, making the land more susceptible to burning. Unbelievable. And now... This fire is helping fuel exactly what the planet doesn't need, more carbon dioxide, and threatening the water supply for all of South America. Amazon, it's extremely fundamental for the water system for all over the continent. So if we cut off the forest, in some years, we're not going to have rain on the south of the country. The G7 today announcing $20 million in emergency aid. French President Emmanuel Macron said the fires were two times the surface area of France. Brazil's president vowing to send 43,000 troops to fight the fire after immense international pressure. But as we flew over the area, there were few signs of human life, let alone an increased military presence. Instead, destruction and death that could deepen the climate crisis.
Now here, there are intermittent shower storms, rain sometimes. That makes the supporters of President Bolsonaro on Twitter suggest that rain may cure this. It won't. There possibly needs to be an international response. The army is on its way. Can they get a grip on it? It's not clear. 85% more fires than last year. We've seen how intense they are. They haven't stopped. And the bickering around this, frankly, is just distracting from the urgency of the problem, Erica. Yeah, certainly not helpful. Uh, that is for sure. Nick, thank you. It was a massive manhunt for a sniper in one of uh, near one of America's largest cities. Now, though, there is word a sheriff's deputy made it all up. That's next. In our money lead, President Trump says he knows just the place to hold next year's G7, and it just happens to have his name on it. The president says he's considering holding the summit at his Doral Golf Resort outside of Miami. He wants you to know, though, this has nothing to do with business. From my standpoint, I'm not going to make any money. In my opinion, I'm not going to make any money. I don't want to make money. Well, the president has not made a final decision. He said officials, quote, haven't found anything that's even close to competing with it. In the national lead, it was all a lie. The California deputy now facing criminal charges after authorities say he made up a story about a sniper shooting him. CNN's Stephanie Elam joins me now live from Los Angeles. This was a major story across the country. Why do officials now believe he made it all up? Well, there are several things, Erica. For one thing, there were several people standing in the parking lot who didn't hear any shots. And also, the story just wasn't adding up. They didn't find bullet casings. None of that. Uh, and this deputy had said that it was coming from the apartment building, four-story building outside of the parking lot. But when they went to go check that, all they recovered was a pellet gun. Well, now this deputy... Uh, Angel Reynosa has admitted that he made it all up, that used a knife to make the holes in his uniform to look like a bullet hole, that he was never actually penetrated by a bullet. All of this made up. And at this point, though, it looks like, according to the mayor of uh, Lancaster, California, that the motive may have been his poor performance. But we're still waiting to hear from wow. him as to exactly why he did it, Erica. Interesting motivation, if that ends up being the answer. Stephanie Elam, appreciate it. Thank you. Stay with us. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.